Hey, and welcome to the Optimum Podcast. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. In today's episode, the team sits down in a roundtable and discusses the biggest takeaways from a multi-day virtual event at the Advanced Vestibular Conference, which was hosted by the team at the University of Pittsburgh. This is a course that happens only once every two years and provides the leading information for vestibular specialists and cutting-edge information research. The event featured some of the leading minds in the world of vestibular rehabilitation, and so there was no shortage of excellent insights to talk about. Some key points to listen out for in this episode are... Number one, there is so much that can be done for people who have dizziness, vertigo, and balance problems, and the specialists are out there. Number two, scientists and clinical specialists in this area know so much about these problems, and so many advances have been made recently and in the past couple of years. And number three, this roundtable will talk about many reasons why it is so important for dizziness and balance problems to get addressed. And again, of course, this is by no means a comprehensive account of all the information that was shared during the conference. This just scratched the surface. But without further ado, let's get into the episode. Uh, our clinical team, uh, Dr. Diana Wynn, um, and then our, our other therapist, Peter Langlois, and then myself, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Guild. So we're going to talk about the Advanced Vestibular Course and what this is. It's put on once every two years by the University of Pittsburgh um, and their great team there. And it's a it's basically a great team of uh, researchers and um, uh, physicians, physical therapists, uh, psychiatrists, um, and all sorts of specialties that team together and basically bridge uh, research and um, also clinical practice in a phenomenal way and vestibular disorders. And vestibular disorders, um, again, dizziness and vertigo, uh, basically to, to summarize it, it's we see it as an underserved diagnosis, if you will. And this is not just a, um, a local problem to Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, it's a national problem, and it's even an international problem. There's even a bunch of uh, peer-reviewed research uh, to support that, um, where it's this is a massive problem nationwide. So we're excited to talk about this today, this, um, this specialty, and hopefully to raise more awareness. So um, I'll start with uh, my first big takeaway from, from, this, uh, from this course, which was the gap between how much we know about vestibular disorders, again, basically dizziness and, and vertigo and balance problems and clinical practice, what we now know and how much we can treat people with these problems. And yet when you go out into the general healthcare system, how little of that knowledge transfers over into everyday practice and healthcare. Mm -hmm. What are your guys' thoughts? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of research that went into that, and there was a lot of, you know, a lot of it was, you know, either overseas or in, in Asia, and there was, I think there was, I saw one article that was in, in Australia. There was, there was a lot of research on this. And it, you're right, it's, it's not just here, but it's just everywhere globally. Um, and yeah, there was a lot that just, hard to be able to just take that and be able to translate it into um everything but there was a lot of good stuff that that i could take away that i can help the general public with i mean even this like the small simple things like you know having a pillow on the table and to be able to help them get into it for testing uh, testing for you know you know even the, the call pike so just being able to get help you know, especially with our population, be able to help get those clients into those positions a lot easier and more comfortable. I'm like, that's brilliant. Right. <laughs> I didn't even, you know, yes. those little things that you don't even really think about. So basically the treatment, the testing and the treatment for vertigo, it doesn't have to be as... 
uncomfortable as it may have been all this time, the simple things, just being able to use a pillow to get people in the testing position when you're mm-hmm. testing someone for vertigo, when you're treating vertigo, and the different maneuvers as well, of course. And that was, oh, yeah. that was another yes. big thing, right? Even treating the vertigo nowadays, they're saying that um, with the research, you can you don't have to do it as many times as you think. Yeah. And that's just a good, good takeaway, too, because a lot of the clients that we see who do have vertigo, they also have a lot of difficulty maneuvering themselves and rolling around in bed right and it's kind of nice because you know they're the they're already high anxiety you know they're Mm -hmm. dizzy they're they you know having all these other uncomfortable already yes we don't want to try to make them more uncomfortable and trying to get them into some of these testing positions so when there's an alternative that might be better for them if they have neck or back pain or if they just are very very anxious and they don't want to be in a certain position i mean sometimes it's unavoidable to have to put them in a position but it's also just building that trust with the person as well so that they are able to feel as comfortable as possible mm-hmm. when it gets to that point and this is huge. So basically what we're talking about is, so if you have vertigo, one, the way that you test for it and the way you treat it can involve some positioning on a therapy table or on a, on a bed uh, where you have to go into some positions that provoke the symptoms, bring on the symptoms. And then the treatment is often rolling on, around basically on a therapy table or on a bed. And for a lot of our population, the vertigo becomes more common as people get older. And for a lot of older people, uh, rolling in the bed is a problem in and of itself. And so it can be um, a significant problem for for our clients and for the therapists who are who are treating vertigo, um, if, if that's what you're trying to get people to do. But again, the, the evidence supports and, and this was this was there two years ago. And, and we even see even more maneuvers uh, now with great evidence that there's a lot of more simple maneuvers that are able to be done that um, that put people into much more simple positions um, and not as extreme positions. And the manu- the treatment for uh, is just as good as the traditional maneuvers. And so there's a lot there that can be done. Um, and there's, you know, there's a lot of education and a lot of information out there for healthcare providers. So um, this information is out there and can be, and can be utilized in, to, in order to help people. Yeah. And there was, a, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of really good information. So it was like, yes, trying to take takeaways. I'm like, all right, that, I, that was really good. That was really good. That was really good. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and what I appreciated about the course a lot too, was that there were so many different disciplines, different healthcare workers mm-hmm. who were teaching different content. So you didn't have just physical therapists. You had a neurologist, a psychiatrist, a neurooptometrist. And it's just like, even if clinically I can't do what a neurooptometrist might do, it's something that it's important for us to know because we might need to refer out in the future. And it's just sometimes people get to the point where they need a multidisciplinary approach mm-hmm. so it's just super interesting to just have like an overall general knowledge of that information yeah and it was kind of nice too because it's like you get to see how all those things kind of play into all right how does you know that really you know breaking down how does that really affect all right your you know your immaculate degeneration is really kind of affecting yes. your 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 dizziness and your you know potentially vertigo and bringing right. in all these other potential other problems it's like all right <laughs> all right because that could definitely affect the way we treat as well when it comes to different exercises for your eyes for your head like all of this type mm-hmm. of stuff 
so the, I think the main takeaway from there, it is so comprehensive, right? And it can involve so many specialists. Now I would, and day to day, um, a, a lot of the vestibular disorders that we see, we are able to work with it just at, as a, as a physical therapist. Um, but when you get into the more complex cases sometimes, or specific diagnoses, you do need to bring on the neurologist. You do need to, uh, bring on the optometrist, um, and, or the ENT doctor. So it, there are a lot of different specialties that can be involved with vestibular disorders, uh, psychiatry. Um, and so there's a lot of different healthcare providers that can be vestibular specialists. They can be physicians, psychiatrists, physical therapists, occupational therapists. Um, so there's a whole number of different people that can be very helpful in this area. So, and, and that, I think that's a big takeaway, you know, raising awareness and getting the information out there that there's a lot that can be done from a number of different healthcare providers. And it's, when you get to that elite, you know, specialty where you're seeing vestibular disorders all day, day in and day out, mm-hmm. you're going to see the the extreme cases, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what this course also looks at. It's like, how do you find those extreme cases? Right. But also just kind of recognizing, talking that, about that. But most of the time, if you know, if you have that that basic training, you know what you're doing. You've gotten mentoring from a vestibular specialist as a healthcare provider. Um, it's not rocket science and there's a lot of things that can be done right away to help people suffering with these problems. And then from there, just knowing when to refer to someone who's more specialized, um, is very, very important. And for the people suffering with these problems, I think it's, you know, there are specialists out there who know a lot about, a lot about these conditions. And the vast majority of these time of the time, these conditions are very treatable often without without medication depends on the diagnosis um and of course also uh what doctor uh, what dr Furman, the, uh, the neurologist talked about he touched on it um two years ago um the over prescription of uh, medications neurological suppressants um benzodiazepines uh with uh, dizziness and vertigo um it, it's a massive problem and this was supported a number a few years ago by the journal of otolaryngology and head and neck surgery where they basically put their position statement out that basically stop prescribing these medications for vertigo and even the complexity of diagnosing and treating vertigo when people are on these medications mm-hmm. maybe okay at the very beginning when people are severely dizzy, but then once you start getting a week or two out of the dizziness, these medications tend to be more problematic than helpful. Yeah. It's a dependency on the medications as in, whereas for physical therapy, usually we're able to get to the root cause of the problem when someone has vertigo. Right. And I remember they mentioned if they're already on those to just have them go off of it before before treatment, before physical therapy treatment, so we can potentially get a better diagnosis and see what's really going on. Absolutely. And then on the opposite spectrum, we also have people who have severe dizziness and vertigo mm-hmm. who are extremely nauseous to mm-hmm. the point where they may or may not throw up during their <laughs> session. And so at that point, we'll usually consult with their physician and see if there's something that we can do. Usually um, they might prescribe something such as an anti-emetic or mm-hmm. anti-nausea medication so that the patient can basically tolerate that our session yeah. a little more <laughs> and we've we've seen that a number of times in our we practice have. where someone's not tolerating um 
the the treatment or the, even the testing for vertigo um and then we call up the doctor and ask hey you know like for since the invention of Zofran, I mean, unbelievable um, how that's been able to help our clients when we can contact their doctor. Hey, you know, we're, we're trying to treat them for vertigo. Would it be appropriate if Zofran um, could be taken before um, we diagnose and, and treat? And so um, major difference mm-hmm. that we've been able to see um, with our clients when they, ta- when they take that type of medication. So, again, it's that interdisciplinary collaboration and planning and um, sometimes it doesn't take that but but sometimes it does um, and again at the University of Pittsburgh they have a great collaboration between a number of dis- different disciplines mm-hmm. and I would and also I would also say clinic uh, research and clinical practice at the same time you don't have people who are just doing research on the topic but they're not in the in the clinic all the time so uh, these professionals are both doing research and they're practicing all the time. So Dr. Susan Whitney um, is is the physical therapist who um, does a, a lot of research in, in this area. And then she's also uh, she's in the clinic a lot as well. And so she she sees it and she it it's also the recognition I'm hearing from her. There's a heavy science to it. There's a little bit of an art and a lot of where experience and just seeing it so many times over and over again you really helps you to be able to help people to to be able to relieve their symptoms prevent falls uh help their business tremendously so that they can get back to the life that they want to lead yes definitely because it's not a one-size-fits-all type of diagnosis or treatment either it's like everybody presents differently that there are simple cases where something might be black and white you might be able to fix it right away but there are other times where people might have and most of the time from what i've seen they also have some type of underlying or residual dizziness after Mm -hmm. their vertigo Mm -hmm. is resolved and then it's up to us to you know basically assess it and see what we can do or what we can't do and refer if we need to yeah it's always the hardest one after they're they still have that kind of woozy woozy dizziness and it's like all right what how can how can i help you with that so that's always the hard yes. one. And especially, especially what I hey. did notice um, from Dr. Whitney's presentation, she put up two really interesting points that are that I that I think everybody should kind of remember is, is that a lot of their vertigo was seasonal, mm-hmm. and yes. a, a lot of people don't realize that. It's like it was, and I didn't know I didn't realize it at the time either. So it was like she was bringing up how it could maybe seasonal, and also. Um, and how that would kind of related to uh, vitamin D deficiencies. And so, you know, it's like, well, vitamin D, okay, well, a lot of our patients who are dizzy, a majority of them are going to be women. I'm like, kind of, I was like putting two to two together there. I was like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. A lot of women are vitamin D deficient, so. Uh, just after a certain age, too, it's like mm-hmm. your calcium vi- and vitamin D levels, they start to go down a lot more. And that has, show- research has shown that that affects a lot of vertigo like there's Mm. a very very high correlation with that and And, we see that a lot in our mm -hmm. older population and i think the big takeaway there is so when i first started treating vestibular disorders about 10 you know 10 years ago or more we weren't talking about prevention there it would vertigo just kind of happened we knew of course it got uh more common with age but that was just kind of about it now we knew we know from the research and we knew this um two three four years ago um the connection between uh, bone mineral density so even to the point of 
if you have a vestibular problem, screen for um, a bone density problem. If you have a bone density problem, screen the vestibular system because the connection between the two systems is that strong according to the research. And that was from a a few years back. And um, not only uh, bone density, but also medical complexity in general. So the more medically complex a person is, the more likely they are to get vertigo. Uh, high, uh, high blood pressure um, thought of as also being kind of a trigger, uh, if you will. But also just the more medically complex a uh, person is, the more likely they are to get vertigo, even if you factor in age. Um, but also now, the and the seasonal thing, and this was it t- keeps tying all together. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and this was brand new, uh, evidence that wasn't there two years ago. So I was at the, um, at this course two years ago in person. And of course this was virtual, um, this time around, but you know, that evidence wasn't there two years ago. So now we're talking about, okay, at the end, uh, at the beginning of spring and a winter, uh, vertigo tends to increase because of the long season of, uh, people where people not, are not out in the sun and aren't getting as much vitamin D as they would normally. And so that connection keeps getting closer and closer. And if you supplement vitamin D, you can reduce the risk of vertigo. You can't, if, um, if you treat it for some, someone for vertigo, uh, the evidence well supports that, uh, if they were vitamin D deficient, you can reduce the risk of the vertigo coming back. So a lot of great research and information now, uh, that I think are, it's very important for, uh, family practitioners, internal medicine doctors, um, that they can be doing on the front end to prevent some of these problems. Yeah. Prevention is always the most important thing or like the best thing in my opinion, if it's possible. Mm-hmm. I wanted to touch base a little bit, Peter, on what you were talking about and the, the treatment for vertigo. Um, again, so it's some rolling around on a table or a bed mm-hmm. and what it tends to do, it tends to stimulate the brain a lot. Mm-hmm. And what a lot of people will experience is what I usually tell people is you might feel under the weather for a day or two after that. Um, and because sometimes people don't, they may not feel well for a day or two after the, the, the treatment. And that's normal, completely normal. Yep. Uh, what I see less of is if they feel great afterwards. Um, sometimes that happens, um, but more commonly they f- they feel under the weather, and so that's what I educate them on. Um, and so, as I think as healthcare providers, it's important the education on the front end, letting them know what what things are going to be like uh, right after the treatment, um, and how they can get better. Um, there, another big takeaway for me was. You know, usually we'll be able to say that, yep, the vast majority of the time treatment for vertigo, um, each canal, you know, one to three times if if you're treating it. Of course, I've seen people where it's taken three different maneuvers, nine to 12 sessions that we have to see them. Um, Not as common. And you see it more and more when when you're treating, when you're working with a a large number of people. Uh, But the vast majority of the time, it doesn't take that many different treatments. But sometimes it can. And so, of course, that can get frustrating for the healthcare provider and for the, the person getting treated. Um, but again, the, the large number of maneuvers that we ha- now have and we can go to if one uh, basically if one form of treatment for vertigo is not working, we have others. And you and we don't know why or rhyme or reason which one when quite so much. But you keep trying different things until you're able to to get rid of it. Yes. And I agree with you on the patient education aspect of that. I think it's so important just 
you know, telling them what vertigo is, like what the likely prognosis is, what might and might not happen, what to expect. It gives them a very big sense of calm afterwards whenever they actually know that it's treatable because so many of them have been told that there's nothing you can do about it just because whoever has treated them in the past or has seen it, just they don't, it's not as well known on the treatment or how to address vertigo. So if someone was listening and they had some dizziness, how would you, how would you, they know it was vertigo? They would have to go see a healthcare professional. <laughs> <laughs> to be able to, to determine whether, right? yes. as, as, because if yes. they're listening and they don't know what their symptoms are and they just know that they're, you know, dizzy and, and you know, and things are spinning around and they're having a hard time. It's like, well, they may not know. Or if they have a loved one, they, okay. they, they, they're having those kind of symptoms. Like Being right. dizzy all the time is not normal. So I would definitely recommend that they go see somebody for that. Yeah. And I would also advise against looking up YouTube videos <laughs> of how to treat said vertigo right. because there are very different types of vertigo and it's just, it gets a little messy. Yeah. And it's yes. easy to make it a, make it more complex when you're going into different canals and stuff. And, so. and we've seen that. I, I recently saw um, a woman in her 30s. She she had been repositioning herself six times in one day using different maneuvers from YouTube. Just, mm-hmm. And and why you know you're you're desperate to get rid of this, and there's nobody there that can seem to help you. They just prescribe you meclizine because that's what the medical algorithm basically says to do. True story. Um, and so you go on YouTube and you find these maneuvers. What ended up happening was she had, um, one, her testing was not normal. So she tested mm-hmm. negative. I knew that she had vertigo though. So we actually went back and, and sure enough, we came back. She was positive in at least four canals, um, which is, that had been the first mm-hmm. time I've seen four canals involved. I've certainly seen three. So basically she was getting vertigo in a number of different areas of her inner ear balance system, very likely because of the different um, maneuvers she was doing and going onto YouTube. And uh, Dr. Whitney had talked about that uh, a couple years ago um, at this course. The And they talked about it here, the large number of more complex cases that they're seeing um, from people repositioning themselves from YouTube videos. But it, it's true recognizing that, of course, they're not seeing the people who have made themselves better. And then, of course, don't end up coming in. But as, as you guys had mentioned, and I think this is important for people to know, very important to see a healthcare provider if you're experiencing vertigo, basically meaning a rotational spinning sensation, right? And of course, you're not spinning yourself around and, and falling on the floor and having fun with it. That's not the reason for the vertigo. Um, but you're getting a rotational spinning sensation. One, it's not normal. And yes, the most common is benign positional vertigo. Um, that is that is what we're talking about today. Do but you want can, to explain to our general public a little bit more about what benign positional vertigo yes. is? So yes. put simply, benign positional vertigo is basically when some you have some crystals in your inner ear balance system that get into the wrong spot. And it gives your, your brain a false sensation of, of spinning. Um, now, this condition is the vast majority of the time very, very treatable. The, the other problem with this is finding the right specialist to be able to treat it because especially with get to older populations, uh, you do have a higher risk for falls. And so they do need to be treated quickly and urgently. And even for people who 
um, aren't in the geriatric population, there's a huge level of uh, debility that goes along with it and missed time from work and missed time from being able to live one's life and to be able to interact with, with their family. Um, the other problem, though, is that rotational spinning sensation of vertigo. Vertigo is a, is a symptom. It can also be more um, emergent uh, type of a problem, such as a stroke, a brain tumor, um, a, a cardiac uh, rhythm problem. There concussion. Are n- concussion. There can be a number of different uh, causes for a sensation of spinning or vertigo. And so very, very important to see a healthcare provider because you also want to rule out um, and make sure that it's not something that's life-threatening. And another thing that they did great in this course was um, to be able to empower all, you know, I think there were 200 people uh, attending the course uh, internationally, to be able to empower us, to be able to screen people for uh, those life-threatening uh, conditions. So even if you go into a physical therapist um, or an occupational therapist or a psychiatrist, being able, they are able to figure out basically if the problem is something other than an inner ear balance problem and then refer you from there. So we need to figure out if it's a stroke, if it's a potential brain tumor, if it's multiple sclerosis, if it's these other things and then get, and then get that person to the right healthcare provider. So very, very important for people to go to, to your doctor if you're, or a physical therapist, if you're experiencing these symptoms, um, because it could be life threatening. Yeah. Uh, I was I'm really kind of impressed on a lot of the concussion stuff that they went through. Yeah, let's dive into concussion a little bit. Because because they they touched on it on two different aspects. One on for just they they did headaches, and then the other one they did for concussions. Yes. And it was just kind of it was just kind of nice because we're starting to see a few more people with concussions. So I was like, that's pretty cool. And not only that, and then that right after the, right mm-hmm. after the. We did the training. I watched the movie Concussion. <laughs> Have you guys seen it? No, I haven't, seen it I haven't heard of oh it. Oh my either. god, it was it was really good because what it did was basically took all the stuff that we kind of went through on uh, over the weekend, and then it was like, that's perfect. So I'll kind of give you a synopsis: is mm-hmm. a neuropathologist who basically goes through and he does uh, autopsies. And he was doing autopsies on these ex-NFL players. And he is like, this mm-hmm. guy has the symptoms at age 50 of Alzheimer's. And, you know, confusion, mm-hmm. uh, headaches, uh, not knowing who he is and knowing that there's a problem and he doesn't know how, how to fix it. Uh, and these, uh, the neuropathologist figures out there's, you know, encephalopathy and then his brain and CTE. And then they are trying to fight, you know, against the NFL to be able to, uh, you know, get them to acknowledge that there's a problem. Yes. Right. I think you bring up such a good, uh, an important point because there are a lot of people out there who have suffered from concussions, especially elite athletes. Mm -hmm. And there's this big pressure for them to return to the field, return to doing their sport right away. Mm -hmm. And it's like, even though they want to, and they might think that they're ready, it's like, you have to clear them through all the protocols and everything for it to be like 100% safe for them to come back. Right. And that's kind of what that movie kind of goes through is like, all right, it's like, not only not only do you have well before there were no protocols (laughs) you just go you just yell okay you you can stand you can walk your back on the field yes but now you know there's a lot more protocols a lot more uh, acknowledge of that because of that 
you know, and the kind of yes. the movie kind of brought out. Um, but it was just kind of nice to see, like, all right, when you know the brain is has that impact trauma, how you know, kind of the top part of the brain kind of just shifts and kind of sloshes around where the like brain, jello, egg like jello, yes. right? And then the brainstem is the one that that's the state, the stable, the you know, towards the neck. And then you have that shearing force in the middle that causes all the a lot of the the problems. So we have, just, we have a much better understanding now of concussion than, than we used to, and what's very exciting too. Now, the protocols are not as conservative conservative as they used to be. So now we have ways of getting people up and moving sooner, um, getting some basic aerobic in to be able to build people up. You know, very early on. And to begin that journey uh, very, very early and begin to make that progress, whereas it used to be just basically lie in a dark room for a long mm-hmm. period of time and allow the brain to recover. Now, now we're no better. And so, and they touched on a lot, a lot of that uh, protocols for early intervention for concussion to be able to empower people to, to get moving uh, sooner. And of course, in our population, what we tend to find is people who, let's say they were elite athletes or say they had a, um, an auto accident or whatever it might be. And they're in their twenties and thirties now, and they're still suffering from these problems. They might have some residual uh, dizziness and vestibular issues as well. So it's like, you still might have that uh, those issues from your concussion and you might not know why it might be coming from your neck. You might have mm-hmm. some neck pain that's contributing to the dizziness. You might have some vestibular issues. It's all. And what's really important is that you always want to rule out the neck before you do mm-hmm. anything because <laughs> right. there might be, you know, loss of blood supply to your brain or this and that. And you don't want to accidentally cause somebody to have a, you know, an emergency room <laughs> type of situation. Yeah, right. Yes. And often with concussion, it might, it's, that's another um, example where it's a good collaboration between, say, physical therapy and neurology, um, oftentimes. And we'll often, if they don't have a neurologist yet, we'll bring them in um, because oftentimes uh, some medical management does need to be there. Um, similar with vestibular migraine. So basically, uh, what we're looking at now basically as migraines as a continuum, uh, not as two separate diagnoses. And so if someone has had migraines for, for many years, eventually they tend to get dizziness and it's, it's a progression of the migraine, not necessarily two different diagnoses. It's all a continuous progression. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if people have had migraines for a long time, now it's not surprising at all that later in life that they get start getting a dizziness and, and other symptoms along with it. Um, I want to go back to uh, uh, Diana, what you talked about the the neck, and so uh, con- there's concussion, but then there's also uh, what we call cervicogenic dizziness. Basically, someone has had an orthopedic neck injury, yes. and now their their balance and their di- and their balance system is affected and they're dizzy as well. Yes. Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Um, so basically with cervicogenic dizziness, the theory behind it is that there is something in your neck that's causing kind of like an altered sensation. So you might have, you know, just like a little bit of a joint restriction here and there, or a little bit of pain that's kind of pulling on things that might be affecting your vestibular nerve, vestibular nucleus, just whatever that might be, you know, affecting those signals that you're receiving and causing you to be dizzy. And sometimes it's as simple as just mobilizing again or like people who are comfortable with it, um, uh, manipulation, what people 
might consider as like getting your neck cracked uh, and to put it in layman's terms. And then there are other times where you can work more on neck stabilization, on stretching, just getting your posture correct so that it's you're better aligned and you're not constantly having to feel that dizziness. And so with cervicogenic dizziness, sometimes that it's just as simple as that. Maybe it's just coming from your neck. Maybe that's the only thing that's causing you to be dizzy. Or maybe it's a combination of mm-hmm. having neck pain on top of other vestibular deficits as well. And it's oftentimes it requires two different specialties. Well, um, it usually does require two different specialties. And usually the those two specialties um, is not the same person, if that makes sense. So the vestibular and neurological specialist is not usually um, an orthopedic specialist as well. They can be, uh, but that's usually very hard to find. Um, now, yeah, uh, sometimes treat the neck and then it's it's taken care of but sometimes it's not that simple and it's this collaboration between the orthopedic specialist who's able to work with the neck and then also the vestibular specialist who's able to uh, work on the vestibular aspect and then you're combining both together to help that person get Mm -hmm. better i think that's another reason why um, there's so many people suffering uh, with these sorts of problems what is the cause and if it's the neck it could look like something else and then who how do you bring in two specialists to to treat that when the diagnosis itself is so difficult to obtain in the first place. Yes. And so with cervicogenic dizziness as well, it's not like a clear-cut test to determine whether it's this or that, but basically you're ruling out every other possible aspect that might be causing the dizziness. And then from there, once you exclude everything, that's when you can kind of make a better uh, distinguishment, like di- differentiate that mm-hmm it is cervicogenic dizziness. Yeah, and that, and that we've seen that in, in a bunch of our patients already. Yes. And just that, not only just, you know, the cervicogenic, but we're also, you know, seeing like that combination. Mm-hmm. And that's why we got Diana. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, you, that good combination yeah, yeah. of both. So based for people who have had whip, uh, they've had a whiplash injury, they've had, you know, they have a kind of long-term neck problems or their neck is always hurting and they all, and they also have a dizziness along with it. Um, they have problems, um, you know, watching action movies. They have problems when things uh, move in front of their vision. Um, if they have get dizzy when they move their head, um, or if they restrict, uh, how much they move their head yes. either because of the neck pain or the, because they don't want to be dizzy which one came first the chicken or the egg and then over time over time it starts to just get worse and worse because they're avoiding these movements further deteriorating or you know uh making their vestibular system weaker basically you use it or you lose it right right so it's just yes which came first the chicken or the egg (laughs) and we see that with uh, with our older population it's quite a bit. Eggs. They, they, <laughs> <laughs> they, the um, what we'll often see is with our older clients, they don't move their head, they don't move their neck yeah. because they have neck pain. But also, when they move their head and neck, then they get dizzy again. Which came first? Mm-hmm. And you start probing around, asking questions, and they've been this way for years. Mm-hmm. So basically, both systems have declined over time their their neck has gotten locked up and tighter and tighter 
Um, and then also their, their vestibular system, their balance system, um, is basically not working the way it should be because they're not moving their head as much anymore. And then I also want to bring up something that I I've noticed in my own practice. Usually whenever I'm having people turn their head and neck, uh, a lot of our clients who have, you know, they don't tend to move their head and neck a lot. They tend to have a more forward flexed, like Mm. a forward head position. And so then when they're turning their head and neck like that, it's causing a lot of discomfort in their neck. And a simple thing you can do is just kind of correct their posture. And then once they start turning their head, it feels a lot better on them. I mean, it doesn't always, it depending on, you know, the level, Mm -hmm. the severity of it, it might not completely take it away, but it does make a very significant difference based on what the clients have said. You'll you'll hear a little more, you know, crunching too, usually. Yes. With that. Which is normal. Yeah. Which is normal. And it's not, what do you, what do you call it? It's just wisdom. It's increased wisdom is what it is. The the crunching is increased wisdom. (laughs) Amazingly, when they move their head and neck, uh, doing the vestibular exercises for a couple weeks, that crunching actually starts reducing. Um, maybe is the wisdom reducing? I, I don't know, but um, <laughs> it's, um, you know, and, and what's, what's happening is, so we have natural lubrication, uh, in our joints and people hold their neck rigid. And so the joints in their neck don't move. And so then the natural lubrication that's in our joints then reduces. And so then they have more and more neck pain. And again, it's that vicious cycle. They start moving their head and neck and then their neck pain starts reducing. The muscles tend to relax. And the, uh, the lubrication fluid is there in the joints. And so they actually, uh, get less problems, uh, from their neck specifically. Now, of course, some, it's not always the case. Sometimes you need to bring in someone who really knows what they're doing to treat the neck. Now, I get also goes back to very similar to vertigo. It can become very complex and it might require multiple specialists and a lot of treatment, but not always. Sometimes start with just postural correction, get someone uh, to improve their posture and see how it go and see how much they can get better from there. Sometimes that may be the main thing that you need to start with. Their muscles just get tired. Gravity takes the toll on them after 90 something years or so. And then it's like, you'll notice that too, by the end of the day, our patients are telling us that, Oh, I feel so well, like tall in the morning. And then towards the end of the day, they just start to slump over. Yep. And it's just, and even, you know, even once you are, getting them and fixing the the posture you know you can get them into that position the hard part is always having them keep it that way because they don't they don't have that musculature anymore to be able to maintain it Mm -hmm. so it's not only getting them there but being able to do the strengthening exercise to maintain it and that's always the challenge yes and then that in turn will decrease their risk of falling as well sure yes absolutely And then we also talked a lot about balance, falls, Mm -hmm. mobility and stuff Mm -hmm. during this course, which I thought was very interesting, especially in the older population. Yeah. Dr. Patrick Sparto is the uh, physical therapist and researcher in this area. And um, his a lot about basically the different mechanics of walking. And I think a lot one of the big takeaways is when we work on how the speed at which someone walks, we can improve their balance tremendously. And we have a ton of research to, to support that. And of course we know that from our own clinical practice as well. When people walk faster, uh, their, their balance is better. Um, the, a lot of the details within the, let's say the walking cycle or the details about our walking mechanics tend to improve when, when we walk faster, uh, where, where are some of your uh, takeaways from, from the, Dr. Spardo's, uh, what content. I thought, 
was really interesting was, I know we had a discussion about this, but basically not just gait speed, but gait variability. So the way you walk and how consistently you're able to walk can really affect your uh, risk of falling. So basically, if you're kind of walking all over the place or just not taking like consistent, even steps, then that can definitely increase your chance of tripping and falling, hurting yourself. But that's in clinically, that's like something that we can treat, but it's more kind of like a combination of fixing your gait speed to help with your gait variability and just keeping things consistent. Yeah. Sometimes I work that problem backwards. (laughs) <laughs> and in terms of fixing the variability to and to improve the gate speed so sometimes you have to isolate it yeah yes. and well i mean i i end up doing that a lot kind of breaking it down to be able to isolate all right this muscle isn't firing to be and which is throwing your gate pattern off and and then kind of fixing that a little bit more is like all right now we're fixing your now you're fixing your gate pattern and slowing things down so you can see it so then once we'll fix the gate pattern then we can build up that speed to get it a little bit normalized yes and you're you're great peter at getting people to shift their weight properly as well which is another problem with with their walking pattern that's also the benefit of the team collaboration that we do i tend to be more kind of the big picture you're very very detailed in that collaboration together even just within the specialty uh, of specialties if you will um is tremendously beneficial because then we can get down to that level of detail. Okay, I'm going to start with kind of the bigger picture and then you work on those details of, well, you're not walking fast because uh, this muscle is weak and this muscle is tight and we need to get you weight shifting in this way and then you'll be able to walk faster. Right. And that's what you do all the time and it's tremendously beneficial. Um, any, any other big takeaways on It is basically just working the same problem in two different directions. What's the root cause, right? Well, you, yeah. you know, you, sometimes you work the problem forward, sometimes you work That's the right. problem backwards. Absolutely. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Find the root cause. Mm-hmm. Then there's multiple root causes of the problem. And so you have to address it from, from, both, from both angles. And again, the big takeaway there, there's so many things that we can do to reduce fall risk. So if, you're ha- if uh, people are having these problems or you know people are having these problems, you know, don't uh, stay silent. Speak up. Talk to your healthcare providers. Um, if um, if you're not able to get help from your healthcare providers, then go to other healthcare providers. Uh, there are there's a ton of things that can be done to prevent to prevent falls in the older population. Yeah, and the biggest thing is just, you know don't feel like you're ever stuck. I mean because and you don't have any choices because you always have choices. Yeah, because a lot of people just kind of like well this is what my doctor said and this is what I'm just kind of stuck here. It's not just old age. It doesn't have to be right. just old age. And so. exercise is a very good way to go about that. Not just for balance and strength, but also for your cognition. And so they talked about that mm, for a yeah. little bit too. And basically like when you exercise, there's a lot of different neurotransmitters, chemicals that are released that can help with your memory, your cognitive function, and just kind of your overall well-being. And, you know, the way people, I talk about this a lot, but please do. Just, actually, our, our clients uh, ask the, about this all the time. So yeah, the numbers on about that, that were staggering when I, when well, to say how the, the, the difference between, you know, the people, the patients who when they studied that the patients who had routine exercise and the patients that didn't yes it was that was significant 
Yes. And so with that, there's just so many different things that exercise can do. It helps with your memory, it releases BDNF brain derived neurotropic factor, which helps with memory, but it also like increases your serotonin levels, this and that. Um, they talked about this a lot in the course, but I also read a book about it. It's called spark and it's super interesting. And it just talks about how people basically, you know, like even test scores, like any age, your memory and your cognition, your anxiety levels, your stress levels, this and that can all be improved just through simple exercise. And it's just amazing how, like how much something so simple can help so much. And it's, it's a very good exercise is medicine basically. Yeah. And not only that, but I mean, just that routine exercise is always good because mm-hmm. even when I, I'll tell this a lot for some of my routine. Uh, or, yes. The, my, uh, orthopedic patients as well. It's like if they're doing routine exercise, when in a problem comes up later on in life, their recovery time is going to be drastically less. Mm-hmm. So it, it just kind of goes prevention for, for everything. Yes. Not only prevention, but just recovery after, you know, just their recovery mm-hmm. time is better. I like the fact that you said routine because consistency is also very important Mm -hmm. when it comes to exercise, physical activity, just like whenever you're taking certain medications, you have to be consistent with it. They're not like, take this just, you know, whenever you feel like it. Well, some medications, yes, but how how um, many, how many of our patients are, you know, like supposed to be routine with their medications and are, oh yes. Or with their exercises. Have you been doing your exercises? Not as much as I used to or should be. Or yes. yet. That's usually my the routine response I get. And the consistency is key for them to continue to improve or maintain where they're at. Mm-hmm. And what a lot of our clients will ask about it. They're concerned about their cognition. Dementia is, um, it severely limits someone's independence. So people are very motivated to prevent these sorts of problems. And what we know from the research how much exercise can help delay or prevent uh, dementia from from happening in the first place um, or to significantly slow its progress. So that's very powerful and impactful for people that this it's not just this makes sense. We actually have the evidence to support it. And so people can be sure that, yes, if I'm exercising on a regular basis, I am preventing um dementia from occurring so I can maintain my independence for longer as I continue to get older. Mm-hmm. Doing whatever you can to slow down any type of degeneration in your brain and your body, just overall maintaining your health exercise is just the main thing to do. Yep. Yes. Any other topics before we go on to, uh, uh, uh we'll touch base real quick on PPPD. We won't dig too much into it, but we'll, We'll, we'll touch on it briefly. No. Go wild. Oh, all right, good. Go wild. All right. I love it. Bring it on. All right, come on. Let's hear right. it. All right, so, you know, I think the main takeaway from the general public, uh, for the general public is, so, um, in about 25 to 35% of um, acute vestibular disorder, so anytime a person has vertigo or a concussion or vestibular migraine, um, an inner ear uh, infection that, makes them very, very sick and dizzy. And then they no longer are after a couple of weeks. These are things that happen on a regular basis and are well-recognized. What's not as well-recognized is the disorders that can happen after uh, someone is dizzy. 
And in 25 to 30% of cases, people will develop basically this, um, this long-term dizziness and anxiety problem, uh, to put it simply. And it's basically, if it's a, uh, it's a basically neurologically caused, um, anxiety along with the dizziness. And here's the big problem with it. So the, the, the diagnosis is now called PPPD, persistent postural perceptual dizziness. Don't worry about remembering uh, the name of it, but it's basically a long-term uh, dizziness, usually with anxiety problem, um, and it tends to happen um, when people are younger in their twenties, thirties, forties, fifties. At least right now, I, I think that it's also present um, in the older population, yes. and we tend to see it. There's more research. There's to more research that coming now out now. As well. So yeah. that's exciting. And it's become, and this disorder is becoming more recognized. But the the problem in the past years has been these people uh, when they show up to their healthcare providers, they'll be labeled as malingerers, meaning they're faking it. They'll be labeled as crazy, and you know they'll see you know um, you know a dozen different specialists. They're being thrown from internal medicine to ear, nose, and throat to neurology to cardiac, uh, cardiovascular to pulmonology. And then by the time they're going to see the vestibular specialist, they also have an appointment with a psychologist a week later. Now there is a psychological component, um, to this, but again, if you think of it as more of a neurologically caused, um, anxiety problem, because basically the brain shifts when someone has, let's say if they have vertigo or if they have sudden dizziness, and basically, um, Dr. Jeffrey Staub is the um, is a psychiatrist and main specialist in this area, um, and he's with the Mayo Clinic, and he gave a great presentation um, at this conference. And what he talks about is the brain basically doesn't shift back once it shifts, and what you get is someone who will be oftentimes very anxious. The walk like they're walking on eggshells or walking on ice. They're kind of furniture walking and they walk very rigidly and they'll have like this anxiety and panic, um, along with this, uh, kind of long-term dizziness. Now, not every person is the same, um, and it can look very differently. And the, this disorder used to actually be about six different disorders that were all named something different. Uh, chronic subjective dizziness was, was one of those, uh, for example. Um, and so the good news on this is there's a lot can, that can be done. There's, there's more awareness now, and I'm seeing more awareness of it now. Um, and basically, uh, a good combination of um, there's some medications that, that can help. Uh, so talk to your doctor about that. So the evidence supports um, SSRIs and SNRIs. Vestibular, uh, tr- uh, vestibular therapy, uh, very, very important for treating this condition. Um, and then sometimes uh, you can bring in uh, psychology uh, along with it as well. A lot of times as, as a physical therapist, we're able to work with people and get them um, much, much better within about six or seven months. But it, it is a long haul. Um, and we, we call these things basically functional. Uh, it's a functional neurological disorder, basically meaning you can't pick a lesion in the brain and say there's the problem like you can with a stroke or a tumor or these other things. It's you have to do imaging on a lot of different people and then compare them to quote unquote uh, normal um, subjects and then compare um, the data from all the the imaging of all the brains. And basically, there's a dramatic difference with people with PPPD um, uh, compared to people without PPPD. So 
we do have the imaging and we've had that for a few years now uh, of the shift in the brain that occurs with people with this disorder. So we're able to say that, yes, this is, this is real. It's a, it's a true neurological disorder. Um, and it looks uh, like a psychological disorder and there's a psychological component. And again, this is something that uh, is quite treatable to a certain point and, and one, people can get a lot of help. One part of that, why people might think that people, these people are malingering is because these people are technically not at an increased risk of falling. So you might have PPPD, but that doesn't mean that even though you feel like you have this fear that you might fall or something, it doesn't necessarily mean that you will. And unless it's for a different reason, a different cause, but that's kind of one of the main things that had like a key takeaway to that is mm-hmm. whenever you are kind of diagnosing somebody with PPTD, they said that you aren't at an increased risk of falling. And I think that's one of the reasons mm-hmm. why it hasn't been as recognized in the older population is because yeah. those, those people always almost always have an increased risk of falling, but it's for a different reason. Right. And I, that's where that, uh, the anxiety comes in with it. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause there's a high, you know, high anxiety with that. And that a lot of that is what's driving yes. the dizziness or is it the dizziness that's driving the anxiety exactly. and they kind of go back and forth and it might they, be completely separate and they just kind of, there's that psychological component to it that, that really is, is really kind of feeds into that. So that was, that was the, the interesting part about that. And where's the line between an older person who's uh, terrified of falling versus a neurologically caused uh, anxiety about falling, if that makes sense. And I think that's why it gets more muddy in the older population. And we see this with our clients. We see um, people with, that present a, that look like a, a lot more like this disorder than your run-of-the-mill older person who's afraid mm-hmm. of falling. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we do see this. Um, and then the research is, uh, is trending that way, but we'll see what happens with it. And the other problem with this disorder, and again, you can think of it as um, anxiety uh, with dizziness after a, uh, a vestibular um, event, event uh, a sudden dizziness or a sudden vertigo. Um, if you distract the person, then they move better. That's part of the diagnosis. Uh, and so that makes it more pro- problematic um, for the general healthcare provider that if they distract the person, then then they walk more normally. So then they're labeled as malingers or crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's another uh, problem uh, with it. So they're not at higher risk for falls, even though, um, even though they walk not very well. Um, their walking changes, they're terrified of falling. They walk very more rigid. Um, but also they move better when they're distracted. Um, and so it's a, it's a very, um, it's a cluster of symptoms together. So again, you can't have a very simple algorithm that says if this, then this it's, um, it's a lot more holistic than that and more comprehensive than that. Um, and then that along with, okay, you know, a vestibular migraine or, um, what uh, or concussion? When does it become PPPD? When does it not? Because the PPPD, uh, this chronic anxiety uh, problem, basically emerged from an original um, vestibular, uh, uh, an original vestibular problem. Um, so that's also part of the challenge with it. So it's it's very comprehensive, um, and so difficult for people to get diagnosed. But again, about think of the quarter of the people who get a um, 
in a, a, an acute vestibular problem, sudden dizziness or vertigo, um, they'll end up with this condition and they'll end up for suffering for, for months and years, uh, looking for, for a solution for looking for a healthcare provider who can help them. Uh, another big takeaway from, uh, Dr. Staub's, um, presentation was, and I think this is new. I did I don't remember seeing this a couple years ago was how beneficial just pure anxiety dizziness because of pure anxiety, how much vestibular rehab can play a role in that situation. Whereas I don't remember that being, being the case before. So I'm very excited about that. So mm-hmm. again, in the situation where we pre where I previously thought, uh, physical therapy or vestibular rehabilitation may not play a role. If it's just pure anxiety that causes dizziness, that that's not necessarily the case. It's not, of course, the main solution in that case, but it's another contributing solution where uh, vestibular rehabilitation can be helpful um, as a holistic approach to, to an anxiety problem that causes someone to, to be dizzy. So I any thoughts on well i mean that's just kind of you know part of being a physical therapist you know you you're you're part (laughs) psychiatrist as well trying to (laughs) deal with a lot of the anxiety issues and a lot of the other things just to you know just to be able to treat sometimes so you just you do what you can to calm them down and to make them feel comfortable to where you can help them with their balance because Yes, the anxiety. Not only is there. that, but you're also you're also trying to you know, like build that trust relationship. Yes, and that is, that alone building that trust relationship is the the main thing that I find to be able to be helpful to be able to help with the anxiety. Mm-hmm. And specific to PPPD as well, you still need the medication. Oh. And so, well, I mean. Yes. We're not psychiatrists, I know. but, <laughs> but yes. we try to do what we can. Yes, that and just educating them yeah. as well is super helpful with the anxiety and the dizziness. Mm-hmm. And what I often find is, and the evidence supports this as well, and with this um, chronic dizziness anxiety problem, simply by providing the education about what it is and what's going on, why it's happening, people immediately already feel better once they know what's going on and there's the uh, cognitive behavioral component of it and that can be ongoing but that initial education about here's what's happening here's why and here's what is going to be done about it and you will get better um, and this is what we're going to do to to get better it can be a journey and not everybody's the same and you can you know, overstimulate people. And this tends to happen all the time. So also if you have this condition and you've been treated in the past for it and you were overstimulated and it made you worse, um, you might be hesitant to, you might be hesitant. So either find another specialist or that specialist just, they need to learn more about you. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've overstimulated people before and you, Mm -hmm. you learn from it and then you go back. Okay. Let's, let's back it up a little bit. And then you, you just start more conservative than you you originally planned. And then you go from there because it's it's not black and white at all. You have to know about the individual person and work with that individual person. And sometimes life, uh, life events happen and all of a sudden there's a new change in the condition because now they're going back to work or now they're um, getting out in the community more. They're running more errands and now they're dizzy all the time because they're getting overstimulated uh, throughout the day. So then you got to 
work with that. So it is this continuous process. Um, I think the, a big takeaway from all of this is one, there are things that can be done with dizziness and vertigo problems. Uh, there's a ton of information out there, um, both, uh, from the research and in clinical practice, there are the specialists out there that can, that can help people with these conditions. Um, again, at the university of Pittsburgh, they're doing a great job of getting the research and the clinical practice together. It's a massive collaboration of different specialties, but it doesn't have to be. And it can start with the individual healthcare providers who can get people started. If they uh, dig in a little bit and learn about these conditions and then get people started on that journey and then know where to refer them to. And there is help out there. So, and if you're suffering with these problems, distance and vertigo, uh, seek out your healthcare provider. It could be something that's life threatening. It may not be, or it could severely impact your life and you go on and on and, and suffering with the problem. Or if you're an older person, you're having these problems. Now you're at fall risk because you're uh, because of distance or vertigo. So very, very important to get treated. So any other thoughts? I mean, to cover quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was a good way to wrap it up. Yeah. There we yeah. go. So, uh, well, thank you so much for, for your time, you guys. This was a lot of fun. So, yeah. um, thank again. you. Hey, everybody. This is the producer, Anmar, here. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. If you want to subscribe to the Optimove podcast, head to www.podcast.optimovedfw.com. That's where you'll find links to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Once again, that's www.podcast.optimovedfw.com. To learn more about Optimove, our practice, go to www.optimovedfw.com. And lastly, if you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, give us a call at 214-712-8242. That's 214-712-8242. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.